Uh, Tim Barker, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my uh, opportunity to open up the Word and talk about it together. We spend this time looking into the Scriptures, and it's a time where I'm talking to you, but as we like to say, this is still a very active time for you, and, and let me be clear, this is one of those messages where I'm going to ask for a lot of help from you to listen, because this is a heavy subject with a lot of complexity, so I need you to be engaged in listening and thinking and imagining well so that you can get where we're going uh, throughout this, this message this morning. We've been going through a series of a super bright future, talking about the doctrine of heaven and thinking about all the implications and all the aspects that come from that future hope for us. And today, we're going to talk about our future bodies. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in and, and hold on to your hat and work hard uh, with me in this time together. God, we ask that you would meet with us this morning, that you would teach us from the text we've just heard from, God, that you would enliven our minds and ears, that you would cast uh, a beautiful imagination for us, as well as an understanding of deep truth. Uh, God, I pray from this that this would drive the way we think and live as we come out of here. Uh, be with us in this time. Amen. So our text is uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you open that up, you have a text with you, pull it up on your app, that's, uh, that's where we'll be. But some of the thoughts that come into mind this week for me, not directly from 1 Corinthians, are things like organic hotspots, gym memberships, the Brady diet, transhumanism, cryonics, and the singularity. So all of these words point to some of the hope that we have as 2017 Bostonians and what we think about in the body the body that we live in, the body that we hope for, the way that we live our lives. Sometimes the way that we think about that broadly Bostonian is we think about our body as maybe an object of worship, almost like a temple that we are prescribed to, that we bring offerings to in a certain way that are to be accepted, and there's certain things that are prohibited that can never enter this body. We participate in wide-scale worship of it. Some of the ways in which we do that are with gym membership and exercise, right? Good thing. In 2016, uh, the st a study put out that uh, there's about $21.8 billion in the uh, gym membership and health club industry. That's how much revenue is related to, related to that. Boston is one of the top 10 cities in average gym membership cost of $91.51 on average. I think the YMCA helps to suck that one down a little bit. Uh, but that's, that's kind of a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of attention goes into exercise and how we use our bodies. A 2016 study from the Organic Trade Association uh, found that the U.S. national average of percentage of households that buy organic products is at an average of 82% of households. Massachusetts, higher. 85% of our households across Massachusetts buy organic food. Lots of reasons to do that. Not saying there's anything wrong with exercise or buying organic foods at all. But what I'm saying is, is they point to a mindset of how we think around our body. There's a reason why that's popular, a reason why there's interest in what we put into our bodies. You heard about the Tom Brady diet? It's been big since the big Super Bowl, right? He eats 80% vegetables and 20% lean meats. There's a major list of foods that he doesn't put into his body of various additives, beverages, even some vegetables that he rejects, something called nightshades, which I don't really know what that is. But uh, certain vegetables, that he's even saying no to those because he's really concerned about being the greatest ever and he can play for the longest ever. That's the reason he thinks about what he does with his body. 
So in this mindset, we see that there's basically a belief that, you know, we have these 70 to 80 years maybe. Maybe we can push it a little bit further. Uh, maybe Brady will be playing into his 50s. Who knows uh, what he'll be doing? Uh, and we think, okay, so it's all about what I can get out of this body now, fine-tune it, get that optimum performance, because when this life is done, worm poop, over and done. But there's also, in our culture, this kind of hope and desire for something future. Uh, it's interesting to see the predominant Western culture view still is a belief in some type of afterlife, believe it or not. Uh, in a st study done in 2014 by San Diego State, Case Western, and Flanta, uh, Florida Atlantic University, 80% of Americans still believe in an afterlife. I was kind of surprised by that. 80%? Like, I don't know if that's 80% of people that I know. Uh, that's interesting that that could be so high. But what's interesting is connected with that is uh, what, that might be, what that might mean or what people imagine as part of an afterlife. A 2016 study in the UK said that there was an interesting note similar to this, this one we found in the US, which is there's a growing increase in the number of people believing in an afterlife and at the same time, a growing percentage of the population who are becoming atheists. So you have atheists growing and you have a belief in the afterlife growing in most of our Western societies. And you think, that's, that's interesting. So to be clear on that, that means for those percentages to be correct, there's actually people who are atheists, believing that there's no God at all, and yet they still believe in some type of afterlife with no God, apparently, or any clear definition of how you would get there. A very interesting factor of our society. So what does that belief look like? If there's no God, but I maybe believe there's something after this, that's when we get into some of the interesting fringe views of things like transhumanism. Uh, transhumanism, literally beyond human, talks about life extension, techno-optimization, singularitarians, biohackers, roboticists, AI proponents, and futurists. They all embrace radical science in a hope to improve humanity's condition. The most important aim for a transhumanist is to overcome human mortality. How can we live forever? Fundamental question of so much of our science endgame and some of this fringe, fringe view. They go to things like perhaps cryopreservation. If we can keep our body at just the right temperature for the right amount of time so the flesh itself is preserved, maybe there's a future for us. There's some interesting... Uh, edgy thoughts around somehow uploading our consciousness to some kind of server where it could be stored and referenced for the future of humanity, even to the point of some kind of singularity where there's less of a division between technology and humanity. If that sounds weird and a little crazy for you, it's actually not that strange. There's tons of books, all of the major universities and uh, theologians are answering some of these questions because that potential is there. So that is a way that is being posed in our culture for a way to have immortality, a life forever, potentially with even without a body, and yet uh, have some kind of afterlife. Desire moving toward that. So you've, you've walked into a, a Christian church this morning, so you have to imagine I'm going to make a turn here at about this point and talk a little bit about what the Bible is talking about, right? So what about our bodies in the afterlife? Because we know everything I've said up to this point doesn't really fit with probably any perception you have of what the Christian view of the afterlife and heaven would be like. But it does offer us more than the 70 and 80 years that we hope to have. It brings us really to more than just continuous survival, not that we just don't end, but it actually talks about the life after life after death. Talking about that there's going to be stuff going on, things that we will be a part of, 
more than just surviving. So what I'm going to do now in our, our next few minutes together is unpack from 1 Corinthians 15 what we know of that, specifically related to our individual body and how that works. For the purposes of this sermon, I, I just want to be clear that, we're, that I'm, I'm assuming and affirming the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus, but I'm not really going to argue for that or explain that. So I know many of you who may have come here this morning may or may not believe that. You might be struggling with that. That's totally fine. I'm asking you to just suspend judgment for the moment for listening to this sermon so you can get where this fits within the Christian worldview. But don't get me wrong. It's a huge thing to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as a bodily resurrection. And I'd love the chance to talk to anybody who's thinking through that, wondering about it, unsure. But for the purposes of this, we're not arguing that. We're going to start with that as our premise and kind of work from there about how this relates to how we live. So the big idea or key message of, of today's uh, conversation is to really look at that there is an incredible hope for today because of our future resurrected body. We can have hope today because of a resurrected future body. Or simply, your body will be raised. Your body will be raised. So if you have uh, 1 Corinthians 15 opened up, we're going to be unpacking that in kind of four points, kind of asking the, the who, the how, the what, the why, how this comes together from 1 Corinthians 15 as part of what Eric's read. I'm going to jump up just a little bit earlier for our first point in verses 20 through 23 of this chapter and talk about resurrection, the pattern. This is almost the who of what we're talking about in resurrection. So if you look at verse 20, Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So from this, Paul is arguing basically that personal resurrection is a natural implication, a normal implication to the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. If Jesus died, buried, and rose again, then it only follows that we also can be like him and will be raised again. That, that's his point. So Paul is adamant that as the resurrection happened, there's implications for us. He calls Jesus' resurrection a first fruit. So Paul starts to rely on some of his, his Jewish background and his, his Hebrew view of life, and he talks about their sacrificial system, an idea of first fruits. So at the harvest time, at about Passover and Pentecost, they would bring their kind of produce that they've raised, and they would take it and make a sacrifice out of that first bit of crop that they got out of the harvest. And they made sure they took that to the Lord, sacrificed it in the temple, and then kind of that covered all the rest of the food that they would be eating, kind of acknowledging that to God. So in Jesus being a first fruit of the resurrection, we're not saying that he's necessarily the first person to be raised from the dead. We actually have people happening that throughout the Old Testament and even in Jesus's ministry. But we're saying that Jesus is a first fruit of a different kind, a continuation of a kind of resurrection that Jesus is an exemplar of, uh, a way that he does that. We're able to actually then learn what our resurrection will be like. What is our future body going to be like? It's going to be related after this pattern of Jesus. So there's kind of three things I want us to walk away from understanding about Jesus' resurrection and how that relates to our future hope of a new body to be raised after death. Number one, God has the power to do it. That's an essential thing we see in the resurrection of Jesus. It'd be a very different thing if we were saying, God's going to raise you from the dead, and we have no evidence, no example, no way of understanding how this has been done, but that's not the case. We have in Jesus an example of God's power to bring someone back from the dead 
to living again and in a new body. So we have that power to witness that. Secondly, the result of the resurrection is able to be seen. It's this new kind of glorified body. We're going to talk about that in just a second in a couple of post-resurrection situations that we have in the Bible about Jesus. But we get to see what this new glorified body is like. Then thirdly, and really important point we're going to drive into a little bit more, is about some recognizability that persists in the body of the age to come. There's going to be things that are true of our body right now that we see will also be true of our body in the future. And that recognizability points back to what we talked about last week with socialness, right? You're able to see somebody, somebody that you've known, and you're going to like know each other in heaven. And that's related to your body and how that is going to be the same yet different in the age to come. And we see that really in the example of Jesus. Two quick uh, post-resurrection samples from the gospel. One of those we talked about just a little bit earlier in uh, Luke 24 in the story of Seven Mile Road, uh, where that name of this church comes from, relates to a story where after Jesus was raised from the dead, he's on a road walking to a city of Emmaus, and he's with two of his disciples. Uh, One guy was named Cleophas, which is an interesting name, but anyways, they're walking down this road. You're thinking, okay, they're disciples. They're going with Jesus. And they don't know who this guy is. They don't know that Jesus is even with him. So they're walking down the road, talking to this guy, saying, hey, can you understand this has been a crazy week? This guy came, he died. Uh, you know, we can't find him. What's going on? There's this story of big happenings in town. And they look over and they don't know this guy, Jesus, at all. So we would think, potentially, this could mean that maybe something really weird happens to us in resurrection, that it's hard for people to figure out who we are. Except we have a very important verse in Luke 24, 16, It talks about the fact that actually they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. So it's not at all that he wasn't recognizable. Actually, they go on this journey. Jesus is about to kind of part ways. They go into a house to have dinner. At that point, their eyes are opened, and they're able to immediately recognize who Jesus is in his new glorified body. He looks the same. They know who he is the moment they're allowed to see what what he's like. Another story you might might have been thinking about is in John chapter 20. And after Jesus has died and Mary Magdalene is going to the tomb, uh, as she goes there, the grave is opened up. She noticed the stone is rolled away and the body's not there. And she's thinking, okay, what's, what's going on? Where have they taken my Lord? She looks and there's two angels there. Okay, that's not your everyday occurrence as well. That's happening. Then she turns around and she sees Jesus. But she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. Interesting uh, situation. I don't think, okay, just some gardener. So we can think of that again. Maybe she couldn't recognize Jesus. Maybe he looked so different that you're like, oh, she couldn't make sense of who this was. But I want to ask you to read that just slightly differently. Think about this. This woman is standing in front of a grave with no body in it where there should be a dead body. There's two angels there talking to her. She turns around and she sees Jesus and she mistakes him for the gardener. That means... He must have looked like a pretty normal, run-of-the-mill average guy when she saw him. There's just a body of a person standing there. Now, she's not looking for Jesus. She's not thinking of Jesus, but she's at least going, it's not like some ghost, weird spirit thing that's over her going, oh, what is that? She says, oh, it must be the guard. I mean, maybe she doesn't even turn her head. Maybe it's not happening. I mean, there's somebody talking. It's just a human body standing next to her. That's the big piece of this. Yes, and then once he says to her, Mary, immediately she recognizes, turns full face and knows That's Jesus, and he's been raised from the dead. So the first incredible hope of our resurrection is that we will be following the pattern of Jesus and enjoying a gloriously new body like his. But secondly, there's a process to this. We see this in the text uh, going down uh, where 
Eric read in verses 35 through 41. Uh, as he read, there's kind of these two questions that Paul starts with in verse 35 to his original audience. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? I'm like, that's great. I'm glad somebody put that in the Bible, because those are my first two questions, right? Okay, how, how does this happen, and what in the world is this body going to be like? Okay, Paul gets into that. He, he talks to this original audience, much like we need to know. Uh, he gives us kind of an analogy about a seed. Uh, seeds have to die, go into the ground, and then new life comes out. You see what he just did there? Yeah. All right, like you die, you go in the ground. You, okay, yeah, he did that. Kind of illustrating what happened in Jesus. That's how new life came out. Similarly, the same thing will happen to us. We have a body, we will be buried, and we will be risen again, and there will be a new life that comes out of that. It's as simple as how a seed works. Now, if you're like me, you're probably going, I actually don't know a ton about seeds, if I'm honest. Uh, I kind of like throw them out there, and stuff doesn't usually grow, so it's not really my, my like wheelhouse, you know? Uh, as I understand it, though, there is like a process. Apparently, uh, germination uh, is what this is called, so that might be on a biology test this week for anybody. Uh, but uh, that's where this plant is growing. So there is a process. There's things to understand how it happens. Well, similarly, the resurrection is kind of a miracle. We, we don't understand exactly how God is going to raise a body from the dead, but there is kind of a process and understanding of what this might entail. So I'm going to throw a few of those things out for it with us because it's great. You're here on a Sunday morning. It's a beautiful day hanging out. Why not spend a few minutes just thinking, oh yeah, how would resurrection even happen? Um, here's some things we've got to nail down and say would be part of the process. One of the things we have to understand is that you are not identical to your body. That's important, okay, right? When you go to a funeral, you see a corpse. That is not the person that you knew, loved, and were with. There's some differentiation between the body and who you are as a person. You're more than that physical matter. And typically, within the Christian faith and even some other religions and philosophies, we designate kind of that immaterial part of us. We usually call that the soul. There's some part that's more than this physicality of what we have. So the exact relationship between the body and this immaterial soul is not unanimously agreed upon uh, in the community of faith. And there's a lot of discussion and things to think about that are, that are healthy with that. But I want to make some kind of general statements that we can walk away with. It's best to understand the human makeup, number one, as a very tight complex of body and soul, immaterial and material. It's not that the body is bad and the soul is good. This is, at best, probably a holistic dualism. These two things fit together, function entirely together in the way that we live and move and have our everyday life. And there's not any necessary distinction between our soul and body. Okay? That's our first key thing we have to be thinking about. So that's who we are. As a, as a human nature. Secondly, our soul is not meant to be separated from our body with any permanence, at least. Could happen, might not happen, debatable things, but at least with any permanence, there's not a view that we really should be separated from a soul and body. It's viewed as a holistic nature. And that kind of describes the unity of our consciousness and our consistencies of our existence. But our soul, number three, and our immaterial person is not identical with our minds. It's essential that we see that. So we're more than our bodies. Got that? Also, we're related together. Don't separate us. We're meant to be one. But when I say immaterial, don't think that's just your mind. It's not just that part of self-id consciousness. It's not just the fact that you have self-identity. The concept is it's more than that. <clears throat> because mental deficiencies are in no way soul deficiencies. So there's an aspect in which you could not quite have all 
of an understanding of who you are and all of your full uh, human understanding mentally, and yet your soul is in no way deficient and can easily be related to your body and also be related to God as a whole. Finally, number four, body and soul are a unity in humanity. As we saw, Jesus may have had this analogous relationship and also is probably related to somewhat of how we think about Jesus being both divine and human together, inseparably linked at the point of coming together. All right, still with me? Hanging in there? There's some deep yogurt, kind of skiing over the surface, all right? Think about like a nice, chunky Greek yogurt. You got water skis, kind of working through it. It's not pretty, chunking through it. These are essentials though, okay? With the close connection of our body and our soul, there are a few comments to make on how the resurrection can happen. Number one, God does it, so it's definitely miraculous. So we don't miss it. There's no way I'm going to suddenly get up here and say, well, really, if you just put a few chemicals together, a little bit of uh, you know, a circuit board or something, and phew, we can do resurrection. I'm not saying that. There's no way that's ever going to be the case. It's a miraculous work of God. Number two, it's really important, our bodies are constantly changing in this life, right? You're shedding skin cells, like it's kind of gross if you really think about it, right? You kind of like look over the seat next to you and you're like just dropping skin cells. Um, that's happening, and yet you're still you, right? So there's change that can happen in our bodies constantly as our body is continually being remade. Probably somebody smarter than me can tell you it's like seven years, ten years, or something like that. In that course of time, your entire body is remade of new cells over that course of time. So that body is still you despite it having consistent and significant change. So the idea that you are die buried in the ground and then are raised to some new life and you go, is that still me or is that some like weird strange thing that's not me. No, no, no. We already have an example in this life of how that happens. You're constantly changing. So there's no reason to think that that ultimate change of moving us to a resurrected body in any way will not still be you. Thirdly, and then we'll move on to some other things, don't worry. For, uh, for it to be your body in this life and the life after, God could use any number of means to do this. Some of the pre present ones that uh, Christian philosophers are looking at are things like a reassembly of your body parts, uh, they kind of go, they become part of the earth. God would maybe bring back all the pieces of the earth, and then your body is brought back together. That would be one way of consistently doing that. Other ways could be around just recreation. There's a new body again. It's still you. God can do that. And thirdly, uh, would be some kind of fission at the point of death where it actually becomes a second body and goes out there. I'm not saying any of those are really clear. My point for raising all these speculations is to say there are things in our world and our understanding of philosophy and logic and science to say this is, there are possible ways that I can put my mind out there and say God could do this. So that means we can actually understand this as a valid and viable hope as well. It's not that God is asking us to believe something that you actually can't have logic and empirical understanding to go into. It's out there. It's a possibility of how this could be played out. So we can put our hope and trust in a God who can do that. If any of that is too much for you, I'll end with this section around uh, the early church father, Tertullian. He uh, was asked one of my, my favorite hypothetical questions. You know, you go to debates, you talk to people, you read books. People love to throw these out, even in the media, right? It happens. So somebody went, okay, okay, Tertullian, you believe in this resurrection, and God's going to put us all back together, and that's great. What if you get eaten by a cannibal, okay? What happens, okay? So your body becomes one with the cannibal, and then what's, what's going to happen from there, okay? Who's going to get resurrected? How is that going to play out? Tertullian's answer was, that's God's business. Okay, he, I'm not going to tell you how that's going to work out. God's going to figure that out. That's God's business at that point. So there is an element of mystery here, definitely, that we're not sure of all the ins and outs of that. There's definitely some serious implications to figuring out how God would do that. 
but you can think, you can ponder, and I would encourage you to, when you can't fall asleep at night, think on how this plays out. What are the possibilities of how God could do resurrection? All right, I'm going to move quickly then to our third hope, which is about being raised, the body. Look at verses 42 through 49 in our passage. I'm going to read those to us. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So moving quickly to understand what this body would be like that we hope in and look forward to in the future, there's a contrast that we see laid out here. There's kind of these different glories. You can see that in kind of the view verses above that I kind of skipped over if you want to look into that with more time. But there's this understanding that different glories given to different things, different animals, the celestial beings, they all have kind of different spaces they take up. Here we're told about natural and spiritual bodies, and they're contrasted, and they're put out there. It's very important that we understand the idea of natural and spiritual here as not describing the substance of which the bodies are made, but instead what is the energizing or driving force uh, behind these bodies, okay? Downstairs, our children are learning some catechisms as part of their curriculum. One of those, question number nine, asks, what is God? Can you imagine that? We're, asking, we're teaching like five-year-old stuff like, what is God? Okay, that's, that's a deep one. The answer that they're memorizing and learning for that is, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. So we're saying that God, as an example of a spirit, doesn't have a body, right? That's, that's kind of by definition, that's a spirit. But yet in this text, we're talking about a spiritual body. So it's normal for us to be thinking, okay, what does that mean, spiritual body? It sounds like an oxymoron, right? Okay, spirit, I kind of think floating, no body, okay, you're out there, some kind of thing. But then you say body, what, what does that mean, a spiritual body? His point of this is to say what they're functioning from, what's the energy, the driving force behind these two bodies? That's the contrast. So when he talks about a natural body, that's, that's the world we live in, right? They're driven and energized by the natural systems of our body. So you think about the circulatory system, you think about the skeletal system, uh, respiratory system, all those other systems you learned about at some point in school that I can't recall at the moment. All of those systems, right, define a natural body. There's some consistency to how it works. It's observable. We can tell what it does. The new body will be a spiritual body. So instead of being marked by that natural system and how it works, you'll instead be energized and animated and driven by the Spirit. And that's Spirit with a capital S. So this is the Holy Spirit who will be the defining energy working behind all of us in our new and glorified bodies. But the description goes further. So it's really important that we get a sense of this. This is the description. So if you want to start thinking ahead, start thinking, what is this like? We need to get a feel for what our post resurrection, new hope body of the new heaven and new earth would look like? How would we describe this? Well, one of the best ways to think about that is around discontinuity and continuity. There's some things that are going to be not the same, and there's going to be some things that are very much the same. So let's start with discontinuity. The future hope, our future body that we look forward to, will have no disability, no deformity, no pain, no illness, all bodily marks of sin are gone. What a transformation. Our body now that will go into the ground, Paul says, is perishable. It's going to waste away. Our current body, 
is sown, it stick it in the ground, and it's full of dishonor. It's natural. It's animated by the natural things. It's sown in weakness. He even uses the word dust. That's our body. The thing we spend so much time on worrying about, thinking on, it's just dust. We bear the image of God. Don't get me wrong. We really do in this body. But Paul reminds us also that obviously we also bear an image of the man of dust, Adam. And that's present as we live. But in this future hope, as we think about what's different, where do we go? There'll be no arthritis, no bipolarism, no cancer, no diabetes, no eczema, no flu, no gout, no headaches, no indigestion, no jaundice, no kidney infections, no Lyme disease. I could keep going. Think about all of those things that we live in every day and we feel. And yet, those things are not going to persist. They will not go with us in our new bodies. For all of us then who bear in life not just those, those kind of illnesses and pieces, but also maybe more serious chronic issues or significant disabilities in family that we deal with or experience ourselves, there's a strong hope. There's a glorious body that we will have. When I think about the future hope of our bodies and just how different it'll be and how discontinuous kind of life will be, I think about my dad. So my dad uh, lives back in Michigan, and he uh, is legally blind. So my entire life, he's never driven a car. He's always kind of had some interesting work along the way. He labors really hard to read. Um, unbelievable thing that he would read and have such difficulty reading. His eyes, kind of since birth, kind of keep moving like a blind person. He has difficulty focusing, uh, kind of catches things as his eyes are moving constantly and figures out what's happening. He... Uh, the way I like to sometimes describe it is, uh, you know, kind of if you go outside, he can see, so we're real thankful that he can pick up stuff. But like, uh, if you go, if we went outside, looked straight up in a cloudless blue sky, we looked up in the, there and we saw the Goodyear blimp as plain as day in the middle of the sky, he wouldn't see it. So that's my best description because it actually happened. We're walking out, we're standing there, oh, do you see the blimp? I do not see what you're talking about. And that was when as a kid I got an understanding, okay, dad, dad's got things a little different here. Uh, small things, the way you relate to that. So when I think about the amazing hope of heaven, and I talked to my dad about it. He's not dead yet. He's, still, he's a believer. He looks ahead. He longs and he hopes when his faith will be made sight and he can look steadily and unflinchingly at Jesus with 2020 vision. And as a son, um, I cannot wait to run to my dad in a new glorified body and know he can see me coming a distance. So that's just one small personal example to think about the hope of heaven and how drastically our lives are changed. Nothing wrong with life. We work through it. God has given us these things to make us better in this life, to turn us to him and to see how fallen and broken our world is. But can you imagine a world where that's true? A world where all of those diseases, all of those illnesses are removed and those things can be enjoyed. That's the discontinuity that we hope for and we must believe in as part of our hope in a body. But secondly, there's huge continuity. Don't miss this. I said your body and your soul are a tight complex, okay? So we can't just love the soul, this immaterial part, and hate this body that we're in. All of its frailness and brokenness is part of it. That's not, that's not what we get to do. There's great things here. So I'm going to uh, read from one of the early church fathers, Augustine. 
in his book, The City of God. He said, bear with me here, it's only about eight lines or so, the body shall be of that size which either had attained or should have attained in the flower of its youth and shall enjoy the beauty that arises from preserving symmetry and proportions in all its members. So he says, okay, when you die, you might get this really great body. Maybe if you died really young, maybe you get this older body. We'll, we'll see how it works out, maybe mature. He says, or if it be contended that each will rise with the same stature as that of a body he died in. Okay, maybe you're going to just come back and whatever age you die, that's what your body will look like in the new heavens. So we, we shall not obstinately dispute this, provided only there be no deformity, no infirmity, no languor, no corruption, nothing of any kind which would ill become that of the kingdom, in which the children of the resurrection of the promise shall be equal to the angels of God, if not in body and age, at least in happiness. That's the hope of Augustine. He puts out there kind of the question, okay, if you're going to be raised to that, I don't know if you ever thought about this again, even if you believe strongly in the resurrection of the dead, have you ever thought what that's going to look like? Like, are you going to get raised when you're younger? Are you going to get raised when you're, like, if you die, it's 80 years old? Are you going to come back with an 80-year-old body? You know, do you get a choice in the matter? How's this work out? Um, a big factor of this is recognizability, right? Uh, if 18-year-old me met 21-year-old Cruz, I probably wouldn't recognize him because he had all his hair, and he wouldn't recognize me 60 pounds lighter. So, I mean, a lot of things would be different in this life. So if you could pick which one we're going through, that'd be quite a bit different. But when you look at these distinctions, uh, there's always an importance that we see the body probably that we die in is most likely what's going to happen. That will probably, in my opinion, uh, probably relate most closely to what we see in the life of Jesus and also some of the beauty that's described for us. So when we think about what that's going to be like, we're going to be recognizable. I've said that word a few months. I'm kind of even using the word recognizability like it's a real word. When you hear that, uh, the idea is that your race, your age, your gender, your body type, your essential characteristics will all persist in your new body. So I'm going to say that again. Your age, your race, your gender, your body type, and essential characteristics will all persist in your new body. None of those things are a result of sin. Think about it. None of those characteristics that I've said have anything to do with sin. So why would they not come with you into heaven? They all will. These things aren't deficiencies that need to be removed. These are beautiful and divinely chosen as diversity in God's created humanity. So let me I'm just unpack that just a little bit more. To say race and gender persist, there is male and female because of God's wise and creative hand. Gender matters because if God made you male, you will be male for all of eternity. If God made you female, you will be female for all of eternity. And in both genders, you will be showing off and resounding and reflecting the beauty and the glory of God forever and ever in perfect diversity. Race, we see in the depiction of heaven, and we may get to there in one of our sermons this summer, there's a depiction of the new heaven and the new earth that every tribe, tongue, and language, and nation, they're present, awesome, and they're identifiable as such. That's where race comes in. That's where those distinctions, they're still identifiable. If you know that they're present, you're able to tell and see that they are present. But again, to emphasize, imagine these bodily characteristics that we all have and we share there will be no more oppression, no more marginalization, no discrimination of physical or mental impairments. So our third hope here is our body will be raised 
and this is what our body will be like. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. And finally, I'll, I'll just end uh, kind of the section walking through this where Paul does in verses 50 to 58. Let me read these words, really talking about the hope of the mystery and the victory that comes through resurrection. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, there shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Pretty clear conclusion from Paul all by himself there, so I'm not going to add much to it. A few quick points. The timing of this, this change, this hope, is a mystery. We await the transformation at the return of Jesus or sometime after our death. Secondly, this means immortality of us, both body and soul. That's the immortality. And God gives us that victory over death. So, he says, go do it. Steadfast labor, it's not in vain. We have this hope, so go out and live with it. This is an incredible way to live differently in our world and look ahead. So there's like a gazillion implications of this, okay? This is, this is a paradigm-shifting view to make sure that you've sat with us through this, you've thought through this passage, go through it again. I'm going to pull out just three things to drive home for you based on these words. Number one, I'm going to say it this way. Your phrase, to get this all right, is your body will be raised. Your body will be raised. That's the entire application. That's the main theme of the sermon. I'm going to break that apart now. Your body will be raised. Number one, your body will be raised, okay? It's a real body. Body matters. It's not inherently evil. The new heaven and the new earth has activity, stuff that we're doing. It's a place of dimensions and descriptions, physicality. Hence, there will be matter. There will be space. Our bodies will live eternally. We will have a body in our future state. So when you think about this, uh, I had a quote. There's a guy uh, in the UK. He's like an emeritus professor from... Oxford in neuroscience, his words on thinking about the afterlife. He says, I just, you know, I could believe in a great Jesus who was a great moral teacher and I can understand all that he's saying and could even buy into the church maybe, but I can't get the idea out of my head of how ridiculous it would be to sit on a fluffy cloud with wings and just waste away your life. Not at all what we're talking about. That has nothing to do with the Christian hope of what our bodies will be doing. We have a body for a purpose in this future hope. Number two, your body will be raised. It's really you. It's going to be your <clears throat> body. I will be raised. What persists? What has changed? What does this mean for today? All those are good questions. Think about the physical parts of our body, all right? What you can see, what you can feel. All the incompleteness, the brokenness, the ineptness, the lacking. There's so much in our body that bears the weight and the effects of sin. But so much of who you are physically has nothing to do with sin, right? Race, gender, physical characteristics, body types. These things have nothing to do with sin and yet are part of us. 
so they will persist. But there will be no prejudice, no marginalization, no wrestling of gender politics, no objectification, no ridicule. All of these things that make being who God has made us to be in the diversity of who we are in our bodies will be removed. And it will be glorifying to see each of us knowing one another without all of those hindrances, all of those problems about how we interact and deal with each other at times. We're able to see difference and celebrate it and know that God has made that the way that he has intended it to be. Imagine that perception. So right now, what do you need to do? You need to be resting in the goodness of God and what he has made you to be. Resting in the goodness of God and what he's made you to be. So if you are a particular gender, race, physical quality, it's knowing that God has put you in that position, that God intends to show his glory through your differences, your diversity, your exact body that he's given you. That's a significant part of what God is asking us to do. All of these characteristics, as I said, are going to be beautifully displayed as God intended in our resurrected body. So much as possible, we're trying to live like that now, celebrating the marks of diverse people of God and humanity, and an absolute standard of beauty. There's a standard of beauty that is made by our creator because he made all these different people in all of these different ways. So beauty is never in the eye of the beholder. Because beauty is in the hand of the creator. It's essential, right? There's not the subjective view, that's beautiful, that's not, I don't like it. No, no, God is the one who's called it beautiful. And God defines what it is. That's where beauty comes in. So it can look all these different ways and all kinds of things that we ourselves have challenges with seeing asymmetry and maybe a different, different look than ourselves and seeing how could that be beautiful? No, 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 don't miss it. God made that person. So there is beauty in his making. So don't, don't think it's just in the eye of the beholder. Glorification is absolute and not relative, and it's what God does. And finally, your body will be raised. It's a better body. It's going to take us there. It's going to be amazing to live this life in a new and unchanged body. The hope and vision of no sickness, no pain, inadequacy, and disability is lived out in a fully functioning and active hope of a body. So my minute conclusion is to say... Our super bright future includes a body. Hopefully you've heard that. So there can be no way you can walk out of here going, yeah, we talked about floating in the sky like a little like ghosty thing. Not at all the hope of the Bible. The idea is in a physical body, persisting with many of the characteristics that you still have today, but removed from all of those hurt and pain of sin. That's an amazing body to hope for. Believe and hope and imagine what that embodied future looks like. Your body. God, that we would capture this truth. God, that it would change the way that we live out today. God, that we would hope in your power and your work, that we would know resurrection is real, and it's a beautiful, sweet hope.